0: Business Executives for National Security welcomes you to Building the Base. Here, thought leaders and practitioners discuss how we can ensure our shared security and prosperity through shaping the future of the National Security Industrial Base. Your hosts are Silicon Valley defense expert Lauren Badula, along with Ben's distinguished fellow and former head of acquisition for the Navy, Marines, and special operators, Hondo Gertz. Welcome back to Building the Base. Lauren Badula here with my co-host, Hondo Gertz, and we're so excited to have the Honorable Sue Gordon as our guest today. Sue served in the intelligence community for over three decades, and 25 of those years were spent at the Central Intelligence Agency. Sue also served as Deputy Director of the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, which will talk about a little bit later on. But one of my favorite facts about you, Sue, is that you were the only person in history to serve as captain of the Duke Blue Devils as a power forward on their women's basketball team in school. So love that, that fact about you, Sue. Thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Well, thanks. Great to be here. Uh, glad to be with you two. Two of my favorites talking about uh, my favorite subjects.
2: So Sue, besides your three years as captain of the Duke Blue Devils, we'll have to talk some, uh, some basketball later. You uh, you also have one of the most uh, remarkable careers, and you know a lot of us have been in this business for a while, and it's always interesting to see everybody's kind of story and trajectory. But what what got you in this in the first place? What sent you on this uh this wild ride that uh you know three decades later we're all sitting here talking together on this podcast?
1: Yeah, I'm with you. I love kind of origin stories. You know, how did how did that happen? How did you get there? Because it's always so much more. Unusual than some straight line plan, and certainly in my case. So I got here by happenstance. I was at Duke trying to figure out what I wanted to do my for my future, and I couldn't decide between getting my PhD in biomechanics and fun- and functional morphology and going to law school. And I thought, well, that's way too big a <laughs> a range to decide on one or the other. Uh, so I thought, well, let's go get a job. My dad. Uh, was a career naval officer. Uh, one of his best friends was Stan Turner, who in 1979 was the director of Central Intelligence Agency. And CIA came to campus. I went, oh, Stan Turner, um, maybe I should apply. And um, I don't, Stan certainly didn't know I was applying. I did, and I got the job. And and I accepted work with the CIA, and I started in 1980. It was the most remarkable ride Um, it was an unusual career in that I was hired to do analysis of Soviet biological warfare, which kind of makes sense with my degree. And that job was not available on the day I started. It had been downsized and I was told to find work. And so I did as a Soviet weapons analyst and then followed a career of just doing my best at every job, learning what I needed to know in order to be able to do that job. And then an arc of just doing what needed to be done. Like somewhere along the way, I became the person you hired if you wanted something done. Um, and and I had a career that was weapons analysis, space analysis of the Soviet Union, building U.S. collection systems, getting into information technology at just the moment that the internet um, became publicly available, went into analytic tools, and then. Somehow miraculously got into operations, cyber operations, and then went forward uh, along the way. I think the most exciting thing to me was the match of me and the CIA and intelligence was like peas and carrots. Um, It was a time when we were solving huge problems, uh, an organization that expected you to do something with the position you have, And it was a playground for people with insatiable curiosity like me.
0: That's awesome, Sue. So a topic we like to talk about on our show is really digging into acquisition. And in 2015, when you were deputy director of NGA, you wrote an open letter about acquisition, which I remember so well. And you were specifically looking at acquisition of technologies, data, and services, and you deemed them as essential to operations and even said one of my favorite lines in the letter was, our enemies do not pause to accommodate inefficient processes. Can you tell our listeners about what drove that effort and perhaps your take on the reaction?
1: Yeah, so I I wrote it, I think, for two reasons. One, you know, this was 2015. We were wrestling with the problem that we'd been wrestling with for a decade before and continue to, which is how do we acquire the things we need? in the timeframe that is both relevant to the challenges we have and the availability of the technology that's gonna solve the problems. Um, And I couldn't figure out why we weren't being as aggressive as we needed to be. So uh, as the deputy director which is kind of always in an organization, the chief operating officer as well, um, I decided I'd give everyone permission and in fact direction to use the tools that we have to deliver the outcome that we needed. And so being very specific. And what I hoped is everyone would carry around this letter in their pocket. And when they ran into an impediment in the organization, they'd kind of whip it out and say, see, the deputy director says we have to do that. And that that would be a way to break through some of the organizational inertia, both giving the leaders uh, permission and giving the organization the requirement to respond to it, I think it was well received by uh, many who felt flummoxed uh, by the processes that we put in place over time. So I hit on the procedural things. I hit on the permission and the requirement to do so. I think I still missed, and and we can talk about that the cultural impediments.
2: So it's a, I mean, it's the age old question, right? Is it a cultural barrier or a procedural barrier? Uh- Mindset barrier, uh you know, getting as you say, getting at the culture and the mindset is always harder than the okay. We'll take one signature off of a document or something <laughs> right. like that. Um, do you sense, and, and I would say, the larger departments really been struggling with this at the macro sense for the last ten years, with some sporadic, I would say, results. Which what do you think? What do you think's holding back, folks? It was always. It was always surprising to me as an acquisition leader when I give permission, and people wouldn't take all the permission. You, They would almost self-limit. And it's not that they're bad people or, or not mission-oriented. It's not because they're bureaucrats or something. There's something of people not feeling comfortable taking everything to the, even when you give them explicit, you have permission to go to X they still kind of go, well, I'll go X minus 20% or X minus 30%. Have you ever put your finger on? I mean, it's a thing I struggled understanding because I think like you, when we came up 30 years ago, you were expected to go to X, if, if not X plus another 10%. I mean, that was just the expectation. And it seems like the expectation or the incentives just aren't there to do the same thing now?
1: Yeah, so I, I think I have, a, in my mind at least, a good fix on kind of the combination of things that's left us here. It is a much bigger lift to solve some of these because they, they're they the product of a lot of years of choices we've made. But let me give you a like, – let's see if I can be succinct on this. Uh, the first is – One of the problems with entrenched bureaucracies is that we've been at this for a long time, and because a lot of things happen, we've developed a bunch of policies, and unfortunately, or fortunately, most of those policies seem to be designed to keep bad things from happening. Um, And again, good people doing good things with good intention, but the aggregation of years and years and situation and situation of those policies that you have policies that took the one off and then codified that and it creates um, sand in the gears of doing good things. And just, that's just a, it's it's why I worry so much about this moment is the the winner is going to be the one that can put technology into use fastest and that favors people without a big installed base and we've got a big installed base. So that's one, is it's just, policies. Number two is the processes and the procedures that we develop to govern this have leaders. And those leaders think that their job is to make sure that that system keeps running. It doesn't mean that they're bums. They think that that that's their job. And I'm not sure that the people that run processes believe that they are empowered to reimagine processes. And I remember a time where I went to my head of security and I said, hey, I'd like you to reimagine security. And she said, not my job. And I'm like, what? Like wrap your head around that. I mean, that is not a nonsensical statement. In other words, she thought her job was to instantiate the vision that somebody, Has, But if it wasn't her who was thinking about how we do security every single day, who was it doing that? And you can go to HR and contracts and stuff. So that's the second thing is processes run by humans. Humans have leaders. Who's reimagining them to achieve the same effect but in a more modern way? And then I think the third thing is just what the current – crop of decision-making leaders and that was a couple levels below us the people that took our intention and had the responsibility and the wherewithal to turn it into action i think they have gotten smaller in what they believe their um power is um both in terms of do they have responsibility for the big vision and then do they have the authority to go and make big things happen? And I think that's just an effect of our collective missions exploding, the world turning faster, and some leaders um, who had the uh, experience uh, and wisdom not smarts, but wisdom to be able to create an umbrella of opportunity for their uh, decision makers uh, to be creative within. So uh, each of those is pretty difficult things to overcome, but you can purposely. You just have to decide that you're going to kind of reshift the organization.
0: Thanks, Sue. And it's amazing that letter was in 2015, almost 10 years ago. And I I recall some of your talks in even 2019 about Twitter and Google and the high tech sector's appetite to work with the national security community. And here we are three years later, seeing Google launch a national security dedicated business and a real change in that appetite and attitude. And I think part of that, if you think 2015 to now, is that shift from a counterterrorism focus to near peer competition China, Russia, what we've seen going on in Ukraine. So I wanted to get your reaction. Pendulum shift and what you're seeing now in terms of that collaboration or any room for improvement still from the high-tech sector with the national security community?
1: <laughs> well, I always think there's room for improvement. Uh, ask my children about life with me. Um, I think we're on a good trajectory, um, but I, but of course still work to do. The, the goodness of the trajectory is it feels to me that for the longest time, well after it was prudent, we kind of presumed that we were all in a time of peace and relative abundance. And when you're in that moment, you can do things at a normal pace and do things as you feel comfortable to do them. I don't know, the last few years has given us that, that kind of urgency to say, whoa, this thing that we have counted on, as though it were a given is now uh, required us required us to think differently in order to be able to achieve that. And listen, I, I think the private sector is, is aware of that. Yeah, sure. They have uh, uh, financial motivations, but they are also participants in uh, kind of the free and open societies of the great world order. And so I think they see it and organizations are feeling the need to do different things. And so that moment of, Crisis, as it were, I think is creating some new opportunities. And, you know, and Hondo, you said this. I think the growing realization that there aren't uh, bad people on either side of this equation, there's everyone trying to do the right thing. We're just not using the same language, and we don't understand the value pro- value propositions entirely of the other side in order to be able to go far enough, far enough with our preferences to meet their needs. And that's true both ways. So I think it's better. Um, I also think the fact that uh, it's a different economic environment that it was, is that the government realizes that it needs to make more of a technical investment earlier, and the private sector recognizes that this market is really an important one. So, need, as always, drives opportunity.
2: Yeah, I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna go back a little later on this uh, how to get comfortable being uncomfortable, which. I think some of us, you know, had the benefit in the eighties of being very uncomfortable uh, and then we got comfortable for a little while and now we're getting back to being uncomfortable. But, but on this, how do we work together? You know, I've often contended we still have a little bit of an industrial mindset uh, when we think about how to partner versus, you know, very transactional and uh, we'll develop something then we'll produce something and then we'll produce some more. Uh, You did a lot of great work. Yeah, I think when you're at NGA, thinking about networks and data, uh, and we've talked about how to create much more of a team of teams or network approach with industry. What's your sense? Ten years, fifteen years, if we get it right from now, what this uh, industrial network or base looks like, and and in, in the relationship with government. And what, what's the? Do you think it's possible to achieve such a vision um, to really accelerate the the partnership between both private and public institutions.
1: Um, well, yes, of course. <laughs> I mean, I, definitely, definitely, I think it's possible. But I think there's, I think there's a couple things that need to happen. I'll I'll start with the government because my history says I always think that the government has the most power and the most responsibility to come the furthest to make good things um, happen and. I, I think there are two things the government really needs to do. Number one is it needs to really continue to invest in a modern technology stack that is there, it's, its technical infrastructure, to allow an environment where good things can happen. Just the way we used to build things are not the way the world works now, and you have to care more about the outcome of how we must operate to create the environment not just build the networks but to create the environment that is going to allow this free and flowing quick turnaround introduction of new capabilities into an environment that is both secure and resilient in a way that is reflective of the world in which we now live and so that that is a big lift that the government has to do. It has to think about security in that world and loss and risk and then build the environment that gives us not only the protections we need, but allows the performance that we must have and the outcome. And and we're still working to find that balance. But there are some really cool things technically. And there are a lot of really wonderful leaders right now really pressing on this issue of of the IT and and digital environment in which we must operate. But that's that's number one. Then the second thing the government really needs to do is to understand that there is so much good wisdom out there in the private sector about the way we can satisfy our requirements. And so quit specifying it based on the way that we used to do it at NGA we were looking for enterprise search and I said okay here's the RFP that I want and the statement of work is we need to be able to find our stuff our stuff looks like this we need this sort of performance and it has to fit in this kind of environment and if it won't if what you proffer won't fit in this environment tell me what environment I need right that kind of open-ended thing and what we sent out I didn't recognize as something that would yield that outcome so From the government side, specify the outcome you need and be more flexible. From the industry side... Quit throwing crap over the transom and leave the responsibility of how in the world it's going to work to the government. Like the government is inundated with what? You're giving us things. It's not things we need. It's things that enable outcome. Take some responsibility for the fact that we are the government. We are designed to be slow and fair, and that comes with something. So don't let us bear all the responsibility for fitting your wondrous capability into our system because that will be slow and ponderous it won't work so vision and opening and understanding how is actually in 2022 how it can work might be more important than what it is
2: right Did you think NGA was able to make some of that transformation too? I mean, Uh, I think some of what they were doing on the publicly available or commercially available information was, I think, starting down the right direction.
1: I think when we write uh, the history of the transformation of the national security community and how amazingly successful it was, and we write that history about the kinds of things that that happened along the way, some of them are not yet in evidence, NGA will hold a really important place because they were one of the first organizations organizations to really recognize that what was happening privately was not just something they could use, but something that fundamentally transformed their mission. And so Robert Cardillo's succeed with the Open, um, not only put recognizing that national security had to happen in the Open because that's where the action was, but what was happening in the in the public space, in the private, in the companies, in the commercial space was actually really useful for our outcome and participant, putting those things together in a more modern way, I think will be the greatest contribution that NGA had. In other words, they took their mission and imagined it in the future, not just modernizing the mission they had. And I think that will be the big jump shift. And so now you see Ukraine, uh, if you look at what Ukrainians used to affect their mission, it was some of these amazing commercial satellites and commercial uh, communications and open data in combination with partnership with U.S. and allied governments that that allowed what is happening there, regardless of how daunting it is, there are some really amazing things that show about this combination of open and exquisite that I think we'll learn from. And NGA saw that in the 2015 timeframe and made that move. They're like any other bureaucracy continuing to, to figure out how to take advantage of all of it for not only their internal processes, but their external effects. But history will be very kind to that moment when they recognized how the world had turned
0: and from a private sector perspective i'd say nga is one of the best partners today at sharing data because that can be you know one of the greatest boundaries to stretch the legs of technology so to have this imagery or data to to use i think has really enhanced collaboration i'm I'm going to shift gears a bit sue and we've talked about really u.s companies in the u.s government and there's great effort today to shore up a lot of our critical capabilities looking at supply chains and how we treat international partners so I wonder if you have any thoughts about how we should factor in international partners, both governments and private sector entities, as we think about a future industrial network.
1: Yeah, so you know when you want to protect critical technologies, let's, let's say that, I, I think we we have historically thought of protection as holding. and and that was that was a f- a pretty good way to think about it when we had the advantage of being by far the only ones who had capability. If I look at this moment, I think the protection has a huge component of ensuring that you actually have the great stuff. And and that requires participating with more than just the limited stuff that you have by yourself. And that is you have to be the place where people want to come to work. You have to have the ability to do great open work that drives things further. You have to have the ability to identify people with shared values and trust them earlier. So so to me, um, not only good global citizens and the obvious advantage of having friends when you come into conflict, I think on a straight technology uh, perspective in this world you have got to take advantage of the amazing stuff, the amazing intellectual talent. If you want to be leaders, you have to have a consortium. You can't just hold on to what you have because you will find that what you have isn't as good as what you need. So so Sue,
2: I'm going to ask you a little bit more on the operational side, right? It used to be that, you know, we would always take the exquisite data and then open source or commercially available was interesting on the side you know, input, but, you know, my, my impression not being an intelligence professional, largely disregarded and thrown away. And maybe you put the CNN up on the screen to make sure to, you know, to get some alert. And I think as technology shifts kind of both with partners and with, with this kind of, you know, democratization of technology, you know, what's in the open source or in the commercially available is, 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 is interesting how have you sensed the intelligence communities work through that transformation and what I what I would call operationalize this new world order, where it's not holding something exquisite we've had forever, but more sensing and in, in being on the network and and really understanding what's going on in all the domains?
1: Yeah, I think it's it's coming along, but this is a big shift. If you just think about the arc of the intelligence community kind of started in 1947 and cold war and all the data you needed was held by governments and you had to develop systems to be able to go after that stuff in very close societies at great range. You can understand how, and we were so far ahead to how we were able to great, get great advantage by developing that kind of systems to go after that kind of infor- information in those kinds of places. Then the, the, kind of threat shifted to terrorism and that information was held differently. And so you see us going after trying to find that information that's not held in government stores, but held with individuals and loose networks. And how do you go after that? If you look at this world, the world knows everything, right? So how are we gonna go after this data? So the first thing is, I think there is a mindset shift that just has to happen that says, no, 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 our mission hasn't changed a lick. It's just not 1947. And so how do we apply the discipline of intelligence against the world's information stores as as they exist? I tell say to people all the time, open data is just data, right? And all the data we've ever collected has required assessment of its validity, so don't be saying that it's not valid because it's out there. We, we know how to do that. I think there are some challenges to the volumetric nature of the moment we're facing. Um, but I think I, I think any intelligence officer, if they thought about it in those terms, would say, man, if we just thought of intelligence as, you know, knowing the truth, seeing beyond the horizon and allowing leaders to act before events dictate, and instead of starting back then, I started today, I go, wow, look at what we could do with it, and you would see why AI must be an investment. Right. Why trusted networks and why partnership with the private sector must be there. So just I I think they're on that path. But if you think about it historically, you can understand that that's a, a big change. And there is a discipline that needs to be developed around the assessment of open source. Because remember, intelligence really isn't just about handing one secret over to a policymaker where, you know, Ah, you know, some light shines down and I now know exactly what to do. Intelligence is a discipline about how do you take fundamentally uncertain information and put a structure so that people can deal with it with certainty. And that has to be developed for open source, but it's got to be used.
2: Yeah, that's that's a great, I mean, I always say the data doesn't know if it's open or, right? The (laughs) data is the data, right? It's (laughs) it's how you do it and what what context you put around it that's really... uh really important and if
1: if i'm and if i'm NASA and if i'm intelligence man i want to use that and if i'm trying to affect national security in this world at speed at reach i also know i have to be able to be out there participating in a world that hasn't been curated but still we add some value to
0: one of my favorite quotes from you i was people are a magic wand and so we've talked about the technologies and the importance of policy and and collaboration but how do you think about talent and what are some ways we can continue to develop and leverage the talent that our nation has?
1: Okay so first things first there's massive talent available. I'm I know the three of us all agree with this. We wouldn't get jobs. Well, I don't know. Hondo and I wouldn't Lauren. you probably
2: (laughs) Yeah. Lauren's got (laughs) true potential, you know, she's got,
1: she's got real relevant skills. Um, but there's, but there's tons of talent, tons of passion. Um, I, I do some teaching and, and there's just the, the, the generations coming forward are generations who want purpose and we have purpose. So I think talent's available. Second, I think, I, I tell people all the time, we need to stop thinking about uh, my f- kind of 40-year career arc and say, what's the best first five years of anyone's career? Man, it's working in the national security community because you'll have a sense of purpose and you'll get more responsibility than you will earlier. Then go, then go do things openly and then come back. Um, I think organizationally we've got some ch- – and so we we need to really work – to get out there and talk about what's great about this mission yes it's daunting but there are some really great things about it um actually mostly great things about it but the organizations have got to do a couple things in order to be able to really uh, uh, both atta- attract and retain the talent number one is um and this is especially true of of my former community um we have to create the invalid environment that lets new talent succeed rather than telling new talent how they must perform, how they must behave and what they will do. Yep. We walked uphill in the snow, both ways to work. That does not mean that's what you have to do now. And so thinking about instead of how do I create an environment that is going to allow this generation be as broad and expansive as we felt we were, I think that's a real need. And the second is you've got to find a way to make people be able to move in and out, um, Easily and seamlessly and move between other things, you know, carry your security clearance on your back Put the continuous monitoring you need but allow people to go from one to the other and actually imagine a career path that takes advantage of that Um, But if we can do that The challenges at this moment are so immense. You know, I always tell people that 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 talent follows quests and dollars Um, well We have quests for days, and the dollars are actually coming. So I think the talent will come. the 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 only other thing I'd say, Laura, to you is, uh, if I were talking to people coming up, uh, STEM is so important. Um, uh, You know, in twenty twenty two beyond, you have to be technically conversant. But I will say that that once you have that technology, don't forget the critical thinking. Because it isn't just the capability, it's the use of the capability. And that is kind of the, the magic that humans can bring. But you got to exercise those muscles too. Mm-hmm.
0: And something you've said in the past, Sue, that resonated with me was the difference between having experts and expertise, which I think lends itself really well to this cross-pollination. Or It's ultimately about that critical thinking and solving problems and applying different areas of expertise, which it, it, I think is a great point.
2: So Sue, um, folks may or may not know you. Uh, you actually stepped away for a while, uh, and and took care of family and and did that, and then came back and and succeeded. What was that? You know, and that and I as as we talked about that was not the norm back back then. Uh, it may be where we need to get to. Tell me a little bit about that, and uh, and and where you can see things you'd learn from that experience and then where we can continue to create the environment that allows folks to move in and out like that and, and do what they need to do and and not choose a career forever or, or not, you know, have, have much more of a blended view of things.
1: Yeah. So I'll try and give a short version of the story. Um, Listen, I'm a, I'm a hardworking, passionate person that puts everything I have into what I do. And then I cheat time by trying to interweave all those things in some magical way. And so I was a pretty dedicated intelligence professional working hard at my craft, especially because I kept on getting jobs I didn't know how to do. So I had to learn how to do them. And I also uh, was a mom and uh, nothing was more important. Uh, to me, to my family, uh, I tell people all the time, in order to succeed in this business, because it'll take a lot from you, you got to have something you keep to yourself, and that can be music or friends. For me, it was family, and I had a pretty good run for 19 years where I could, with the help of of my husband, who is absolutely a saint, um, make all that work. And then bam, the day came where I could, it became obvious to me. I couldn't be as great a mom as I wanted to be and as great an intelligence officer I wanted to be. And because I know who I am in or out, um, I figured I better do what only I could do, which was to be a mom. And I gave two weeks notice and left, which I can, I say as though it was nothing it was an easy decision because I knew what was important to me. It was a daunting decision because I was giving up something I absolutely love and I had fear that I would no longer be as much of a badass as I thought I was if all I did was spend time with my family. Um, but still I left him and, and and I and I think when we talk about coming back, the reason, it worked as well as it turned out to work was because I made my choice and I knew there would be consequences to it. It's just the consequences were less important to me than the choice I was making. Um, and so I spent eight years uh, finished successfully deploying my children on their life. And I looked up and I was in my late forties and I thought, well, I'm not done. And, and I went back to uh, CIA and I said, are you guys hiring? And they, were you know we can we can say it wasn't you know i it sounds like it was nothing um i think they were because i had been good at what i did before i think they were because i hadn't asked them to do what they couldn't do when i left i didn't ask them to keep my job warm for me i didn't ask them to let me keep advancing so if i ever decided to come back they'd hire me at a higher grade or all those sorts of things i had lost more than half our family's income Um, but when I come came back, albeit at a lower grade, I got a chance to embark on an entirely different set of journeys, but keep going in the same in the same way. So I had been mostly IT and weapons and space technical systems. I came back and got into the world of operations and support. Um, for anyone who faces a crossroads or a choice of any ilk, I would say. Uh, don't be afraid, uh, make your choice, understand there will be consequences, kind of see those, but know what's important, uh, to you, uh, when you come back. And then if it turns out you need to make a different choice, make a different choice. I will say the big thing I learned from stepping away is I think I'd been pretty smug about who the cool kids were. And who were the contributors? When I went out, uh, and I didn't work. I well, I, I, I worked. I started a nonprofit for the kids' school and did stuff like that. But I didn't. I didn't have a paying job. But I learned that the engine of a society is actually not the few, peop- just the people that go to the nine to five jobs, or in my case, six to ten or eleven jobs. Um, it's the people who are in the schools and at the crossing job and in the lot in the libraries. And so I came back to the agency, a much better leader. I saw many more contributions. I saw the impact of what too often are the unseen jobs. And so um, even by stepping away, I became better. And that is a truth. You become better at everything you do, even when you're not doing it, if you're willing to.
0: There are so many lessons in that story for our listeners. But w- one of my favorites is to back to the point of cross-pollination that you just made, where it's not that you stepped out and took a pause for eight years. You continued to grow and see different perspectives and learn and bring that back in, into national security with you, which is so cool. Um, now, Sue, so this month marks three years out of government, if I'm doing my math correctly, so three years in the private sector. So I'm curious if you have any surprises that you've seen on the private sector side or has it changed your perspective on anything that you saw in government?
1: Yeah, I'll try to actually give you a short answer on this one. Um, the the three surprises number one is kind of not really a surprise man doing this work of national security working for the government is really good stuff like i it it's great work um it's maddening work sometimes but it's great work and i miss it um but i actually have kind of a warm feeling about no no no, it really is great work so for all the soundbites out there of of deep state and bureaucracy is so this now it's great work. So that's one. the second thing is in the private sector, <laughs> there is so much patriotism writ large and patriotism, not in the small sense. Yes. Uh, pro U S but also pro do good things, free and open societies and kind of the, just so much willingness and interest to throw not only what companies are doing, but what individuals can do, I uh, just so much it. I I think you can fall into the trap of each side thinking the other one is either uh, petty or greedy or narrow or not as good or something. That's all silliness. There there is just greatness um, out there to be used. And then the third thing is though. I do think that the private sector does not fully understand how hard the job of of government and the responsibility that that carries. It is a really big, really hard responsibility. Whether it's being effective, it's affected as well as it can, I think that that is not understood. And, and then the other one is... I'm not sure the government recognizes that how many of our problems are already solved if we could just take advantage of what's going on out there. There's just such goodness and such creativity um, in terms of solving things. So my big lesson here is if we could each see the other more clearly, (laughs) we would have to break down all the barriers we started talking about at the beginning because the possibility of, of advantage for us is so resplendent.
2: Yeah, I think you know you describe a lot of what I call super connectors, and I think really effective leaders are those super connectors. They've got empathy, they've curiosity, they've got humility, but then they're not afraid to go off and act. and uh, And in this relationship with industry, I think there is this: if if there's not a understanding on both sides, then it's hard to get respect. If there's not respect, then it's really hard to look for those opportunities that aren't, you know, as as obvious. How how have you, uh, you know, a lot of my understanding on connecting and all that came from great mentors I had over the years that, you know, I, I wanted to be in a little bit of a stovepipe and they broadened my horizons and <clears throat> challenged me to go do jobs I didn't think I'd be good at or, or quite frankly, wasn't even interested in until I got into them. Which, how have you approached kind of, you know, mentorship overall and then, you know, is there somebody that just put you on the right trajectory early on through mentorship. I think a lot of up and coming generations sometimes think of mentorship more as sponsorship than, uh, and so I do a lot of talking of how to, how to ask for mentors, how to seek out mentors and take advantage of them. Um, what's your sense in all of that, Sue? Uh, how do we, and quite frankly, actually mentor across this public and private, uh, boundary somewhat as well.
1: Um, I think I was lucky or well designed to hear wisdom and to get pretty direct feedback. That turned out to be mentoring all along uh, the way. From a lot, you know, I I said I moved a lot of jobs, and I had each time I made one of those moves, uh, I had people willing to tell me what they thought about those moves and whether I agreed with them or not. Um, I certainly listened to what they had to say and then made a decision. Uh, a- Accordingly, the effect of all that in me was this really fundamental lesson of being willing to give away some part of what I preferred to get the outcome I needed. Right? You have to. Uh, I I'm. I say it now. Is do you want to be righteous or right? And so my big my the gift that, if I think, allowed the career I had that was given to me by so many who commented when I was trying to do something about their wisdom and how to do that, led me to this point of saying, man, if I was willing to give up some per point of my preference, i would I would go forward. I owe everything to those people who took a minute to tell me what they, how they saw it, right? And this is a, this is a really interesting point of mentoring you know every problem you take or moment you take to a mentor you still own you can't give it to them you can't get them to do it and for every mentor who is lucky enough to some have someone ask them for help it's still that person's issue so so to me it's that the perfection of mentoring is in people willing to offer you their wisdom on your moment and recognizing that it's those two, and then you take all that and turn it into something. My, I, I my, my favorite mentor. I've said this before is Stephanie O'Sullivan. Um, she was not the first or the only, but. She, I lucked into one her preceding me um, in the job as principal deputy, um, but being my boss when I was at the CIA when I when I first came back, um, and she is so different from me, but so smart that I continue to go to her, and she almost always tells me something totally different from how I'm thinking about it. I don't always take it, but I am always better for hearing it so find yourself have lots of mentors listen with good ears about what their wisdom could do to your problem and then do have people you go to who are not like you because you may find that that's the key to finding your path
0: that's awesome sue is there anything that we haven't asked or hit on that you'd like to tell our listeners
1: uh i I I guess the only thing I'd say and I think I've implied this but I'll go ahead and state it now is a really interesting moment. You know I I've I've been like a serial revolutionary throughout my career and what I've learned is that moments are the mo- most important aspect of making something happen. If you have a moment, you better use it. Now, if you find yourself and you don't have the moment, then live to fight another day. But if you have a moment where there is an opening, you have to step into it. For your listeners, I would say this is one of those moments where the world is sufficiently changed that we can't draft off the work of our predecessors. We have to create anew. So step into it and quit being stymied by what isn't and use what is.
0: Thank you so much, Sue. I think your, your description of this renewed sense of urgency and appreciation for prosperity and I think patriotism on all sides, the private sector and public sector, I think really highlights the need for greater collaboration, but we're seeing it too. So thanks so much for giving us your perspective on, on these issues and some ideas that we can hopefully put into action.
1: Great, it's been a romp, thanks. You've been listening to Building the Base, a podcast from the Business Executives for National Security. Join hundreds of senior leaders and executives dedicated to the mission of keeping our nation safe. Check out our
0: projects we're currently working with, important upcoming events, and the many ways you can get involved
1: at www.bens.org.